Jake Dutton is a firefighter with the FDNY, currently assigned to Ladder Company 102 in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. He was previously assigned to Engine Company 235 and has worked as a paramedic in the New York City Emergency Medical Services System since 2006. A native of Northern California, Jake grew up as a competitive skier and an avid outdoorsman. He began his career in the fire service working as a seasonal firefighter for California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, now Cal Fire, and North Tahoe Fire District in North Lake Tahoe. Jake is a member of the FDNY's Incident Management Team and serves an NYC-based disaster relief organization where he regularly responds to disasters and humanitarian crises around the world. He holds a Master of Art degree in Emergency and Disaster Management from American Military University and a Bachelor's degree in Fire Science from Columbia Southern University. Jake serves as a Human Performance Analyst for Leadership Under Fire. Jake, so happy to have you on the show. Thank you, Patty. So you're different from many members of the Leadership Under Fire team and the FDNY in that you grew up in Northern California, and we've talked about this before. Yes, we have. Uh, can you tell our listeners about your childhood? Sure. Um, I grew up in North Lake Tahoe, California, mainly small communities named Tahoe City and Squaw Valley. My family was from there. My father was uh, not born there but raised there. My mother lived there for some time prior to meeting my father. Tahoe's... Uh, an outdoor lover's haven. There's plenty to do if you like to ski and hike and swim and boat. Both of my parents were very much part of the working class of Tahoe. My father still is a mason there. My mother worked a lot of jobs while raising two kids, as most mothers did in that community. Yeah, so uh, I mean, overall, growing up in Tahoe was great. I still miss it every now and then. Mm -hmm. Living in New York City is, is quite a different beast than living in beautiful Lake Tahoe, but a, a good beast. What are some of the things you grew up doing that are different than somebody like myself growing up here in New York? Well, growing up there, there's pretty much only one or two things to do, mainly ski. Even in you know what would be considered the warmer months or the summer months there, there's usually snow on the ground for uh, a good chunk of the year. When I graduated high school in June, it snowed three feet of snow the day before we graduated high school and they had to move it inside. So still plenty of snow sometimes in late June when the rest of North America is starting summer. Athletically, we had a lot of sports available to us and we yeah. had a lot of stuff uh, potentially to play, but mainly it was a big, big ski community. Most of the kids that I grew up with uh, in some way, shape or form pursued careers in the ski industry or, or went on to be Olympians. I'm the only one that ended up being a lowly firefighter <laughs> in New York City, but... Um, Still an adrenaline junkie. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um <laughs> So uh, most of the guys that I work with here look at me and they're like, uh, what happened to you? All these other people that you grew up with went on to be Olympians and, and competitive <laughs> skiers and, and world famous skiers and, and you're just a firefighter. <laughs> I don't know about just, but that being said, unfortunately, your brother Tim was killed in 2014 in a skydiving accident. Do you mind sharing what happened? Yeah, sure. So my brother, we were about 18 months apart growing up. He uh, was always into skiing. That was his thing. He loved loved the mountain, loved being on the mountain. He had a rough go at his teenage years, um, struggled with addiction for a little while. But ultimately, you know, I look at his life and, and everything that he did and accomplished, especially post probably one of the lowest parts of his life. And it is 
truly a story of resiliency. He got his act together and, and started competing professionally skiing. And that kind of led him in, into this whole new world, this whole new arena of competitive sport skiing, mainly a big mountain free skiing, they call it. So you're typically brought up on a helicopter or a hike up a mountain and you're dropped off and you're charted with navigating down that hill and you're judged by the route that you take and the jumps that you go off the cliffs, the time, all that stuff. So um, he did very well um, on the Free Ride World Tour during his time. He initially, on a whim, ended up actually getting to compete locally where we grew up right after he cleaned up mm-hmm. and he won. And then he went on to win North America and then he went on to win a lot in uh, in and throughout Europe and ended up being number three in the world at his peak, which was the highest at the time that any uh, American ever placed on the Free Ride World Tour. But with that industry, as we all know, and when we talk about risk and stuff like that, there's a certain level of consequence that comes with that. You know, that industry is known for people pushing the limits right. and, and pushing, pushing, pushing and in order to make a name for yourself. So unfortunately, he is kind of a consequence of that. He was killed April 29th, 2014 in a skydiving accident in Lodi, California. You know, it was, it was definitely a hard thing to, to go through and, and even harder to be his uh, only sibling and having to go through that with my parents. Um, they still, you know, rightfully so, it's it's still pretty rough on them. But, you know, I, I was never more proud of him and proud of the life that he lived and uh, what he accomplished, especially after being at, at that low point in his life and really coming back being resilient, getting his act together, and flourishing his, his last years of life. But I think that he got to do what he wanted to do, and I'm, I'm proud of the life that he had and the life that he lived. Right. It was a short life. He was only 27. But as you've mentioned, he lived it to the fullest, right, those 27 years as a professional skier, an extreme athlete. What have you gleaned from the extreme sport world as it pertains to human performance? You talked a little bit about pushing that risk envelope. Sure. So I, I think when it comes to extreme sport, especially extreme skiing, I mean, we grew up in in a time and in an atmosphere where, you know, a, a lot of big mountain free skiing was developed. You know, you had guys like um, Shane McConkey and mm-hmm. um, the Gaffney brothers and a lot of guys in Squaw Valley where we grew up really, you know, taking it to the next level and actually making an industry out of big mountain skiing, which had never been done before. Primarily skiing competitively was done in the Olympics you know, uh, freestyle skiing, stuff like that had been getting popular. But that environment in and of itself is an environment of risk. There's no givebacks. You know, in order to make a name for yourself, you really have to push that envelope and continue to push that envelope. And that's how you garner a name for yourself in that industry. So from a human performance perspective, there's obviously uh, a lot to be learned from that industry, stuff that's worth exploring further. Like I said before, there's no givebacks in, in that industry. So being at, at peak performance and having the ability to perform at peak performance is key in that industry. Mm-hmm. There's so many times, especially nowadays, you see athletes continue to push the envelope and either lose their lives or even get injured to the point where they, they can't do what they want to do anymore which is unfortunately a consequence of that industry. But everything that I've learned and everything that I've gotten to learn and, and everything that I know now uh, mm-hmm. about human performance, I, I wish that I had known sooner, obviously, as I'm sure everybody comes in here and tells you that as well. But um, for that, I hope that it's something that's definitely being considered and being used, as, as I, I do believe that it is. But in order to allow these athletes to push the limits, but also know their limitations, so mm-hmm. to say, which I think is kind of 
to circle back with the whole risk thing. Mm-hmm. It's easy to risk and put out and do a lot of risk, but at what point do we draw back on that risk or what time at what point do we determine that this risk isn't worth it, especially in that type of industry? You yeah. know, and it's very different from firefighting or EMS or law enforcement or, or any kind of public safety job where we're regularly put into situations where we have to navigate risk for life right. um, versus, you know, financial gain and fame. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is very different than what we're doing because sometimes we're put into situations where we need to push the envelope and it's not necessarily the case in that industry. Mm-hmm. Nobody's losing if you don't do this per yeah, se. Yeah, what's the mission in extreme sport? Sure. Right. But I think, you know, like a lot of that goes back to like, well, all right, well, what's your why? You yeah, know, your like, intrinsic and, motivation. Yeah. And in my brother's case, you know, he, he suffered from addiction for several years and mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of that, that was his why, you know, that's why he pushed the envelope. He kind of replaced the high. Yeah. That, you know, Mm -hmm. with, with that. And, and to us in our family, that was acceptable. And death is something that we talked about a lot, And you know, especially him doing that and me doing what I'm doing, you know, like it's something that we've, we discussed before, but yeah, of course it was definitely a shock uh, when it happened and not something that you think that, all right, I'm going to have to deal with this and navigate this now for. Mm-hmm. for myself, my parents, and our entire family yeah. um, moving forward. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry for your loss. Going back to you, though, in your personal journey, you were both a firefighter and paramedic for the California Department of Forestry, present-day CAL FIRE. What sort of work did you do? Did you fight wildland fires? Yeah, so um, I, I wasn't a paramedic there in California. I went to paramedic school here in New York City um, at St. Vincent's Hospital. But at CAL FIRE, yes, we... Basically, the, the California Fire Department, as it's called now, Cal Fire, um, is responsible for covering all the unincorporated parts of the state. So anything that's not national forest land or that's not incorporated into a city or a, a county, so to say, is then covered by uh, CDF and, and sometimes other governmental fire departments like uh, military grounds and stuff like that. They, they would have uh, fire departments in, on their mm-hmm. air bases. I only say that because I worked very close to one. But we, we would basically be hired on during fire season. The county that you were in would staff up engines in anticipation of a fire season. So usually from like May to October, you would get hired on full time and you'd report. We worked uh, four days on, three days off at the time. We ran three-man engines and we basically responded to everything 911 based in, in that in that area. You know, obviously it was a little bit different at the time in that, you know, we would close the station down at the end of the season and there was volunteer fire departments there left to fill that gap so that the community would go from having full-time fire protection to having volunteer fire protection during during the winters and the off seasons. But we would respond to everything from and I mean any 911 call medical calls, vehicle accidents, and then we did wildfires, uh, structural fires, anything that kind of came along with that ter- territory. And we would also respond into areas that did have municipal fire departments to supplement their responses, like a mutual aid type of a, a deal. It was a very challenging time um, when I worked at, at Cal Fire CDF. Summer of 2004 and even 2003 prior to me uh, getting out of the fire academy and, and getting hired by Cal Fire, where the state was starting to see the beginnings of what they're seeing now with uh, extreme fire behavior and mm-hmm. and kind of starting to have these periods where fire seasons didn't end on on the calendar like they traditionally did where you know usually we were on from May to October and after October there there wasn't any fires now you have periods of time where there's fire duty year round and in certain parts of the state and the same goes for any part of 
the West or even South of the United States. I mean, look at, look at what's happened in Australia where these crews are, they're encountering extreme fire behavior, fire behavior that they've never seen before, fire behavior that they've never anticipated. And it's, it's just happening so quick. So I think from a human performance perspective, there's a lot for us to learn in that community. Mm-hmm. Um, that community is typically very overworked during fire season. You know, you could be out for weeks at a time away from your family, sleeping in the dirt, you know, on rotation, working 24-hour shifts on fires. We're covering other units, you know, when resources are stretched thin. You know, they do everything they can to staff up and get more people to fight those fires. But, you know, as we just saw in Australia, they were pretty much overcome in, in that type of situation. And that's kind of been the play in California for the last few years as well, you know, where the, it's it's just very becomes very tough to keep up. And then on top of it, add this rapid fire behavior that's that's changed dramatically in the last decade because of, you know, if there's any climate change enthusiasts or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, it is definitely straining our, our wildland firefighters, you know, whatever the cause of it may be, mm-hmm. and it definitely presenting new challenges that, that they're having to rapidly adapt to mm-hmm. in order to, to protect the communities that they protect. So different than what I've experienced here in New York City. <laughs> what was that experience like for you when you were working there? I was young. I, I basically had just moved out from my parents' house, and I was fortunate enough to get into uh, the Butte Fire Academy, which is in Northern California, and it's one of the premier fire academies out there. Typically out there, you go through a fire academy at like a community college, and they give you all the basic level training that you would need to then apply for a job. So a lot of the people that go through those academies will start out and they'll, you know, get jobs working for the state or local smaller fire departments that'll staff their crews up for the peak months, um, summer and winter. You know, I, I was... I was young and a little bit naive. I luckily had great leaders that I worked for and great people that I worked with. And, you know, they kept kept us somewhat safe. But it, at the time, that was kind of the that was kind of the way it went. Like you had uh, people coming on young 18, 19 year old kids that were just out of high school and they're looking for a fire department job. And and that was a great starting point And it was a way to make money for the summer. And you know, the training at the time was somewhat nominal, like uh, the minimum requirements weren't were much. At the time, it was a 67-hour course you had to take, and, and you were able to then apply for jobs. Most people came with more training than that. But the stuff that I saw there and, and the experience that I gained, I, I think, is is priceless in the sense that I learned a lot, and I was put into situations that were uncomfortable and situations that I had to navigate. To this day, I don't think I've seen more fire than I saw working uh, in the CDF engine during that time period. You know, there was times where we would get sent out on strike teams. Um, so the station I worked at had two engines and one was ready to go out uh, out of county at any time. And sometimes we would get sent out in the middle of the night to drive several hours to different parts of the state and show up in, in these towns and communities that were completely on fire. And, you know, like we so in some cases, we were the first resources there after driving for for X amount of hours or X, X amount of time and and then expected to actually go to work and, and try and do some some fire extinguishment, which with the, the wind situation uh, during that time wasn't wasn't too giving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, it was definitely a, a very challenging place to work, a very exciting place to work. So then what was the impetus for you to leave California and come to New York and join the FDNY? Well, on the other end of the coin, I was a little bit bored. 
Um, <laughs> so I, I, I enjoyed doing what I was doing, but I, I've always... After all of yeah, that, I was a I mean, bored. <laughs> I, I was always drawn to New York City, you know, and I, I always um, liked the idea of coming here. When I graduated high school, my grandmother said, I'll, I'll buy you a trip to anywhere you want to go in the world. Where do you want to go? And I said, New York City. So my mom and I came here for a week and, you know, we explored New York City. And, and ever since then, I was like in love with this place, you know, like I, I love the energy. I love the excitement. Um, I love the people, the culture. And, you know, I was getting to a point where I was going to either start settling down there and kind of planning my, my life for my the rest of my career in the fire service. And it got to the point where I would have always wondered for the rest of my life uh, what it would have been like to come here. Yeah, you don't and, want and that work. what if. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, obviously now, like, thank God I did. Yeah. I mean, you know. I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But what was that transition like, personally, professionally? Uh, it was. I, a, was it a little uh, bit of a shock? Yeah, it, definitely. It was a little. It was. It was tough. I mean, you leave everything you know, and I'm sure that people listening this to this can relate to that. But you know, you leave everything you know, and you you go start new. I didn't have any friends here. I knew one person when I came here. I packed three bags. I spent a lot of time looking on Craigslist for an apartment, mm-hmm. and finally found somebody that would rent an apartment to me. You know, where I grew up, that wasn't a problem. You kind of gave people your word you were going to pay rent. It was not a problem. But when I came here to find an apartment, people were like, you're 19 years old and you don't have a job. How are you going to pay rent? I'm yeah. like, oh, don't worry. I'll pay it. And they're like, yeah, that's that doesn't work here. You know, like mm-hmm. so eventually I, I found a place to live and was able to move out here. And I had intended of going to, to college here. And there was a mix up with my high school transcripts getting here in time. So I wasn't able to sign up for classes. And I had always wanted to go to paramedic school. Mm-hmm. And so I did a little bit of research and I found St. Vincent's here in Manhattan that was offering a paramedic program at the time. And I thought it would be a little bit late to apply, but I called and inquired anyway. And they told me that day on the phone said, hey, can you come in and, and do an interview and take the test? And I said, yeah, sure. For the next class, I'm like, no, for this class starting in a week. And so I did and everything worked out. I passed the test and the medical director liked what I had to say. And so they offered me a spot in, um, in the paramedic program. And that's where I spent the next year of my educational, my educational career, so to say. Mm-hmm. I'm in paramedic school at St. Vincent's in uh, the West Village, surrounded by arguably like the, the best paramedics that New York City ever had to offer. You know, it was kind of a, a haven for, for people that were, you know, the, the top in their field, um, true healthcare providers, people that that loved being paramedics uh, through and through. And I really learned a lot there. I was very, very fortunate to have that happen to me in my life. I think it really set a base for me and everything that happened here in New York City, um, especially not knowing anybody at all. I I made lifelong friends there. Um, I went on to work there as a paramedic after I graduated from paramedic school. You know, just the the knowledge that was there and, and the professionalism and the levels of patient care and thinking that went on in that hospital was uh, second to none. It was unfortunate that it that it closed, but you know now there's a community of us that are still circulating around EMS that all worked at St. Vincent's together, and you know every now and then we have a reunion, and it's it's really great to get together and see everybody. But you know that that was kind of the start of my public safety career in New York City, so to mm-hmm. say, was getting into paramedic school and, and and getting that getting that done. So, so when did you join the FDNY? Why did you join? So my goal always when I came here was to, to become a firefighter for the FDNY. When I moved here, I kind of gave that up for a little while. I, I gave up hope of being a firefighter for a little while in hopes that I would I would come here and get to, 
to join the fire department. And about a year after I moved here and was almost done with paramedic school, I, I got offered a job as an uh, emergency medical technician with the fire department. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the start of me entering public safety in New York City and, and working for the fire department. You know, I went through their EMS Academy, which was pretty intensive, still is very intensive. I think that they do a phenomenal job there now. I recently went up and, and did my paramedic refresher there and they you know, for the the changes that they've made and, and, and the leadership that they have there now is um, is really great. You know, like they're, they're doing a phenomenal job of training, you know, our emergency medical technicians and paramedics. So I went there. I spent my time in the EMS Academy and then I um, ended up working in the South Bronx for a short time. And then when I finished paramedic school, I had hoped to go back to the South Bronx, but they sent my entire class to Brooklyn, which was a blessing in disguise because that's where I spent the better part of my firefighting career so far, also mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I continued to work as a paramedic at various hospitals on the side. So it was fortunate that I could still work doing what I wanted to do. Also, I love being a paramedic. I love the challenge of being a paramedic. I love the thinking part of being a paramedic. There's really nothing that rivals that. You know, so I want to pause for a second and ask about something that happened in 2008, because you received a medal for the courage you displayed as you went to help a man trapped in a wrecked car on a Brooklyn street, only to have the driver point a gun in your face. What happened there? I was, you know, like like any young paramedic, a, l- a little bit cocky on the cocky side. You know, like we, uh, I had great partners when I worked in Bedside as a medic and. Go get our partners. We loved, you know, buffing jobs and, and getting out there, really working. We worked eight-hour shifts. We'd try and, you know, do anywhere from like ten to twelve calls if we could during that time. And uh, this day happened to be a, a warm summer afternoon. I worked a one p.m. to nine p.m. shift, and our first call was for somebody having a seizure. And um, we got there, and it was a, a grandmother with a baby infant that she said that she. Thought she might have had a seizure because she had a fever and she was she was stable and so she just wanted to be taken and evaluated at the hospital. On the way to the hospital, I was driving down Albany Avenue and uh, while I was driving, a, a livery cab goes blowing past us and plows right into a traffic light. So, you know, like it's Brooklyn, it's summer. Brooklyn then wasn't Brooklyn what it is now um, in a lot of places. <laughs> But I, I got on the radio and told the dispatcher what had happened and that we were being flagged down for uh, a vehicle accident to send an additional unit to, to the scene. And I was going to go evaluate the driver. I could see the driver in the in his seat kind of struggling to get out. The windshield had popped out. The vehicle was smoking. A large crowd had, had gathered around the vehicle initially. And uh, as I approached, everybody that was standing around the car just split and ran away. You know, me probably not as street smart as I should have been at that time. You know, it registered in my head, but I kind of thought maybe they were running away because the vehicle was kind of smoking and steaming and, you know, or maybe something along those lines. So I had gone to the rear passenger's door and I uh, asked the guy, I said, hey, I'm here to help you. You know, let me help you get out of the car. And he gave one look at me and then he came back over the passenger seat with a gun and he, he fired one shot. I think I think he might have thought I was a police officer, mm-hmm. which our uniforms are very similar. And it hit the ambulance. At that time, my partner kind of was like, "What what's going on? You know, and he poked his head out of the back. And talk about falling off the backside of the curve. <laughs> to this day, it's one of those moments where I, I can remember I, I tried to make a, a radio communication to tell the dispatcher what was going on. I, I would have loved to hear the tapes. I, I said something on the radio, but I, I don't remember. Um, 
I ran as fast as I could run. I retreated to the back of the ambulance. We got everybody out of the ambulance and there was a deli right across the street and we had kind of gotten the grandmother, the the child and my partner in into the back. And I went as I went back to the front, a police car had pulled up in front of the deli and parked and the gentleman with the gun it was now out of the vehicle and uh, immediately started firing at them, which was also towards us. So we were laying on the floor of the deli while the glass broke over our head and the guy was shooting into the deli and missing the police. And ultimately, um, cops came from everywhere. And um, yeah, that was... I read somewhere there was like over 130 shots fired. Yeah, that yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was pretty pretty bad. Seeing that the gentleman had pretty good cover, uh, like by parked cars on the whole side of the road, and, wow. and they uh, shot yeah up, upwards of 140 shots while we cowered on the floor of a bodega <laughs> where there, the gunfight was going on. Um, you know, luckily none of us got hurt. None of the police officers were injured. Um, your patient. The patient wasn't injured. Um, the perpetrator was was killed by the police. You know, but I, I always like look back on that too, like especially when we talk about human performance and, mm-hmm. and the moral component of, of human performance, you know, and, and having to make those types of choices uh, and navigate those types of choices. And, you know, everybody in EMS takes an oath that they're going to provide patient care unbiasedly to anybody, including somebody that tries to take your life. So I, I did end up doing CPR on on the gentleman after he had expired and, and driving into the hospital. You know, the, the moral component of performance, I, you know, when I talk to, to group EMS groups and stuff, you know, I, I easily think that, that that could have gone the other way. I'm not sure that I was at my peak human performance uh, level, so to say, or, or in my peak human performance mind or operating well, in the sweet spot. Well, you didn't have spot. the tools then that you have now, I wonder. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, there's lots of Lots of instances in, throughout my EMS career where I, I look back and I, I could have been a better paramedic um, had I had the human performance stuff that we have now mm-hmm. and know what we know now about people, you know, operating under extreme extreme stress. We've really just started exploring human performance in EMS community and in pre-hospital care. I think. That that community, you know, they're overworked, they're underpaid. You know, the the burnout rates are huge, the turnover rates are huge. In in most cases, I don't I don't want to speak for the entire EMS community in the entire world or the entire country, but at least here in New York City, you know, I've been putting in more life or death situations as working as a paramedic, not necessarily for myself, but for my patients, or having to navigate extremely stressful scenes, whether it be you know a pediatric cardiac arrest or a member of service, a police right. officer, or you know a firefighter or somebody that or one of us, another p- paramedic or EMT. So having to navigate those scenes, you know, on top of everything that that is expected of us, and and the, the EMS community in and of itself could highly, highly benefit from human performance. You know, another thing that we have in EMS is that we don't have in the fire service. And when we really started exploring human performance from an EMS perspective is that we have a lot of patient care data that supports human performance deficiencies. You know, for for the fire service, we are starting to gather data and we're starting to get a better understanding of of the actual type of physical and emotional stressors that are being applied to us on the fire ground or while operating in emergencies. But in EMS, you know, we have a a long, long list and decades of patient care data that supports, you know, poor innovation rates um, or medical dosage calculation errors. You know, a, a lot of those things, we haven't got any worse physically in our physical performance or our tactical performance but we've 
haven't really done anything for the mental performance mm-hmm. of, of that community and of EMTs and paramedics. So looking back at that, you know, when, when we used to have, you know, you, you could be a paramedic on the street and you could be working, you know, two jobs, you're burned out, you go to a pediatric cardiac arrest and now you, you miss the intubation. Yeah. And what do they, they do? They might, they might QA you, they might bring you in and say, hey, you know, you missed this intubation. You know, this is maybe the third one you've missed this month based off of your paperwork. You know, we want to send you for retraining. And so they'll send that member to retraining mm-hmm. and they'll say, all right, well, you need to intubate this dummy X amount of times in front of us so we can see that you're competent. Or maybe in some cases they might send them to a, an operating room where they can actually have practice, you know, amongst uh, a physician and anesthesiologist by their side to get a little bit more realistic training. But ultimately, we're circulating these people through that type of tactical, you know, retraining over and over and over again. And we're not doing anything to address the the mental component of operations. You know, where was that person when the parent came running in the room with the, their dead child? And where, where were they on, on the human performance curve? Right. You know, we're all human. We know that. And, you know, you wouldn't be in your right mind if you weren't falling off the back of the curve in those situations. I've been in that similar situation where, you know, definitely had caught myself maybe falling towards the back end of the curve and have, having to bring it back, you know, or seen colleagues that, you know, were, were just so, you know, the, the emotional situation going on, whether it be parents freaking out or, or coworkers, um, you know, people trying adding that that level of stress and excitement to the scene, you know, not being able to start IVs, not being able to innovate, not being able to do a lot of the skills and a lot of the fine motor skills and cognitive skills that that were required to do on a regular basis. So, you know, there there's definitely uh, a lot of areas that that we want to explore and that we are exploring, but there's definitely a, a gain for the EMS community when it comes to human performance and, and getting better and something that's also been largely neglected, even more so than I would say in the fire service. Thank you for all of that and your insight. Hi, listeners. I want to take a moment to announce the 2020 Leadership Under Fire Leadership Development Course. The LDC consists of five days and evenings of dynamic instruction, discussion, and collaboration focused on tactical leadership. The LUF advisory team for the event includes LUF founder Jason Bresler, Captain Gabe and Jemmy of the Camden, New Jersey Fire Department, retired FDNY Lieutenant Danny Murphy of Rescue 2, and more. The course also includes a staff ride of the Antietam Battlefield and a fitness and recovery session with Dr. Belisa Vranich and Jimmy Lopez. Early bird registration is available from February 1st through April 15th. Registration is limited to 18 leaders lodged on the farm and six lodged at nearby hotels, so act fast. For more information or to register, visit leadershipunderfire.com and click on the events tab. Now, let's get back to the episode. I wanted to talk a little bit more about your response to major crises. In recent years, you've deployed to several disaster areas. Can you identify some of the places you've responded to? Sure. Since 2013, basically, I, I volunteered for a, um, a nonprofit organization based here in New York City that coordinated through the World Health Organization. And when a call would go out for assistance at a, a natural or man, man-made disaster, the humanitarian community typically can respond. Um, so a lot of these non-governmental organizations respond into these countries and kind of fill the gaps of providing health care at various levels 
um, anywhere from filling a, a simple gap of like mobile medical care, which is typically what I was involved in, mm-hmm. all the way up to providing, you know, enhancing surgical care abilities and stuff like that, providing physicians to operate in hospitals that are oversurged in certain parts of the world or that are typically probably likely oversurged already to begin with and then further strained by a humanitarian crisis or a natural disaster. So in 2013, I kind of started my journey in humanitarian relief where I responded to um, Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines. And that was a big eye-opener for me. It was always something that I wanted to do, you know, especially uh, I was working as a paramedic in New York City uh, when the Haiti earthquakes happened. Um, and, you know, New York City sent tons of help down there. And that was a major humanitarian crisis still to this day. I think, you know, uh, parts of Haiti are still recovering from from that earthquake that happened upwards of oh, yeah. 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we responded by an international request from the WHO for assistance. Um, Typhoon Haiyan had, had ravaged the eastern and southern coasts of the Philippines. Upwards of 8,000 people were missing or, or presumed dead. It hit at kind of perfect time in the middle of the night. So a lot of people were in their homes and, and um, some of the areas that we ended up going to in Eastern Samar were completely like entire communities completely washed away, just foundations left. So, you know, the Philippines is an island nation. We spent a lot of time working closely with the U.S. military assets that were there and they ended up flying us in helicopters to islands on a daily basis for about two weeks straight. And we were just providing basically recon and and primary patient care and and creating somewhat of a a referral pathway, so to say, um, for more critical patients to get them more definitive care. A lot of the time we we would respond into these areas you know, there's there's people that have chronic needs already that are, are being neglected, as we saw recently in Puerto Rico. You know, a lot of people, um, I was down there for a short period of time, and, you know, there was um, beyond the people that were immediately affected by Hurricane Maria and previously even Hurricane Irma, which a lot of people don't talk about, that, but that was kind of the start of the domino effect down there. You know, people weren't able to get their high blood pressure medications and their diabetes medications, and that kind of created a, an entirely new humanitarian crisis on top of what it what was already going on there. So in that same way, we always would kind of go in, in, in the realm of, of trying to fill those gaps and, and reestablish those channels of, you know, providing emergent care in the communities that we were in and then further providing um, evacuation services and stuff like that when we could. Um, I also worked in Nepal in 2015 after the earthquake there. We were there for the second earthquake, which was a 7.3, which was pretty sketchy to say the least, you know, up, upwards of 8,000 people were killed in Nepal also after that, that earthquake. I've also done other work throughout Central America, basically uh, in the crisis realm of just helping to develop training programs that will further enhance the capabilities of the local people, um, whether it be the police or an EMS agency or typically a lot of these places, their infrastructure isn't, isn't vast. It's not great. So we're giving them somewhat of a step up on, on tools and, and skill sets that they can use to now navigate the crises that are going on in their community. So from a human performance perspective, obviously, like there's lots to be said. You know, I, I think back at my time in those places and the one word that comes to mind is resiliency. Right. You know, I, I've never seen, you know, people be so resilient, I think, especially coming from a big city and even growing up in the mountains where, you know, sometimes we would get upwards of six feet of snow in a storm and lose power for a week or whatever, you know. But, you know, the people in these communities that are hard hit after these disasters, you know, kind of real quickly, like, 
picking it up and shaking it off and, and going back to, to doing what they're doing just to survive. Yeah. And even in the worst of conditions, you know, and, and typically us being foreigners and guests in a lot of these communities, you know, you're going into places that have nothing, you know, they, they're getting rice dropped out of helicopters into their community and they're still offering you food. Right. I was you know? thinking to myself in <laughs> these situations, you see the best in people and you also see the worst in people, but it's nice. Yeah, when absolutely. You- yeah, I'd say definitely you see more more of the best, you know, yeah. more of and communities coming together and people coming together. And and unfortunately, you know, like I think that that's something that's lacking in a little bit in in today's society and in, in the modern world so to say. Yeah. Basically like what Sebastian Younger yeah, says in his book Tribe, you know, like yeah. that's, you know, there's there's that sense of tribe in a lot of these places cuz that's all that they have. So, you know, like even in some places, you know, you we would go to some of these far remote communities um in the 2015 earthquakes in Nepal, we were in um, the Dotting District, which was one district over from where the epicenter of the uh, earthquake was in uh, an area called Jarlang. And, you know, there was very few buildings left standing. The ones that were, were had some damage to them in some way, shape or form. But, you know, we, we got up there probably upwards of five to seven days after the earthquake had hit. And already there were people rebuilding you know, like they had received no help. They had re- received no word from the government, mm-hmm. you know, and we were kind of sent up there to – we were given a, a briefing and said, okay, you know, like this is the deal up there and, and go ahead and go up there and, and see what's going on. You know, and, and while there were people that were critically injured and needed help, the community had come together and was taking care of them and addressing their needs until we could try and get them more definitive care and more long-term care. You know, the downfall, I think, to a lot of the humanitarian relief community and disaster relief work is – how big of an impact can you make in a short period of time? You know, that's a whole nother facet of the whole thing and kind of goes back to what I was talking about before from the moral component of mm-hmm. of uh, performance and, and what we talk about morally, how we go to these places like uh, and, you know, um, how are we ensuring that we're optimizing our ability to, to impact the community while leaving them more resilient, so mm-hmm. to say? over less resilient. I mean, obviously that's part of a larger conversation. Oh yeah, (laughs) much less. We have to designate a whole other podcast to that. Um, But actually, as you're telling me all of this, I'm thinking to myself, like, how do you take care of yourself in those scenarios or those situations? Because you have to take care of yourself in order to take care of others. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we would go to a lot of these places, there's zero infrastructure left. We would bring everything with us, including even food to last for uh, upwards of two weeks. And in a lot of these areas, you know, like my wife would uh, on occasion get mad at me because she wasn't able to call mm-hmm. as often as she would yeah. like, or I couldn't check in for sometimes upwards of five to seven days in some of the places because it just wasn't satellite phones didn't work you know she's a solid woman though so she she she, is (laughs) um she's still with me so i guess it's all right right? um you know so um yeah it it definitely wears on you emotionally and physically you know and i think a lot of that goes back to your why like why are you there why are you here to help people and why why are we all here and if there's people suffering and there's something you can do about it then you know and you're, you're you're given the opportunity to, to do something about mm-hmm. it, then how could you not essentially? And and there was definitely some rough times and some rough recovery periods and maybe ate something or drank something that I shouldn't have had and paid for it for upwards of two weeks to a month after I returned wow. home. You know, for the most part, you know, um, my experience and, and my overall human performance ability, I think, is, is way better because of that and those experiences and seeing these communities be resilient and learning from them and learning from them the, th- the way they responded to these 
these horrific crises and disasters. So, you know, like uh, if you take it as a learning experience, which I try to learn something from everything, you know, good and bad, you know, that's that's one way to look at it. But, yeah, definitely – I don't want to say I'm uh, not a spring chicken anymore because I'm not that old, but I, I'm starting to feel older a little bit, you know. And, Physically. Uh, yeah. Not, you know, not. like sleeping on the ground for 16 <laughs> days is not good for my back, you know. So, but um, some people say that is the way to go. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah. But, but I actually think this is a perfect time to segue into your introduction to the Mental Performance Initiative and all of the things that you started to learn after these experiences. So I've heard Jason Bresler joke that his first introduction to you came via your captain in Ladder 102, then Captain Tim Parker, now Battalion Chief Tim Parker, who referred to you as the guy who would immediately take all of his FDNY MPI recommended reads and read them before he had a chance to. And I guess it's fair to say that your initial exposure to the MPI concept came through those books. As both a firefighter and a paramedic, what was it about taking a more structured or intentional approach to optimizing human performance that resonated with you? So I'm going to defer to J-Mac on this one. You know, (laughs) like, you know, what can I do to be more like J-Mac? That's the rolling question. But ultimately, you know, like uh, as a young firefighter and especially in a generation of firefighting where we all want that extra ability to perform under stress and perform at fires, perform in emergencies, perform during pre-hospital care. I've always tried to be a student of the job, both as a paramedic and as a firefighter. So we regularly hit tactics. You know, we're always drilling on tactics, tactics, tactics. Physical fitness is huge, especially here in New York City. You know, we're regularly faced with having to navigate some pretty physically challenging firefighting and emergency tactics especially paramedics, you know, this is a vertical city, there's lots Mm -hmm. of stairs, you know, so that was stuff that had always been drilled into us from the beginning, you know, like, like, all right, we're going to, you know, physically be fit and tactically be ready. But when my captain came back from the week long MPI course, he was like, hey, listen, I just did this thing. Uh, You might be interested in it. I know you're always reading and you're looking at new things. So here's a book. Take a look at, you gave me Firesight. I was just going to ask, which one was it? Yeah, it's Firesight. So, you know, and I was like, oh, I started reading, I read through it and, you know, it was a relatively short read and I was like, wow, this is very interesting. You know, and, and like most, you know, you think mental performance right away or there's like oh psychological mm-hmm, like mental yeah mental health stuff like that and you know i feel like i've always kind of been in an arena where you know in the fire service and especially ems you're kind of everybody's kind of telling you like hey this this monster's going to get you at some point like you know you're like you're going to succumb to ptsd you know you know other elements and stuff like that but you know so I, I started exploring it a little bit more and I was like, oh, this is interesting. Um, I was fortunate enough to get to have a few conversations with Jason eventually. And I was like, wow, this is not what I thought it would be. It wasn't that. And suddenly I felt like I was at home <laughs> amongst, my, yeah, amongst my fellow nerds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like, uh, you know, I always felt like I was willing to explore different things in the fire service. And, you know, I always read different um, journals and stuff like that. But I felt like everything kind of came up short a little bit. Like it wasn't quite hitting like the spot that I felt like was missing in, in my performance. You know, like how how can I be better? Well, I drill on tactics all the time. We do tr- tactics. We practice tactics. We practice in real life regularly. We're constantly being put into these situations where, you know, we're expected to perform as, you know, the 26-year yeah. senior man like Jim McNamara and – you know, else other people like, you know, I'll always refer to Ben Shelton, who was uh, one of the senior paramedics at St. Vincent's when I worked there, you know, like 
always cool, calm, collected, knew what to do, knew the protocols, knew his job, but never got out of his, you know, never fell off the back of the curve, so to say. It was always there and always was the voice of reason and always was the person to bring us back center when we were drifting. So, you know, once I started learning more about this and discovering this, I was like, holy crap, like this is something that I feel like, you know, and, and I think the triad was what actually like hit it home for me. It was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like we have the physical, we have the tactical, but what, where's the mental? Like we haven't been doing anything mentally for this. And, you know, so that really had me diving in headfirst and I, I never looked back. You know, it's time consuming. It definitely takes time. You know, I have my wife practicing a lot of human performance <laughs> stuff. You know, she just she just got to uh, do the workshop with uh, Jimmy Lopez and, and Dr. Belisa uh, last weekend with the, at the Brooklyn retreat, which was good. She finally got, she's like, what are you talking about? And like, all right, read this book. Still, what are you talking about? So I was like, all right, come to the class and you get, you'll get to see. So finally she's, you know, like we were just skiing this last weekend and she, you know, being a native of Colombia and Australia has saw snow for the first time in New York. So now I have her skiing in these big mountains. She's like, I can't do this. I'm like, use your human performance skills. You can do this. Breathe, you know, come on, let's, you know, and, and it works. Um, sorry, I digress. But so not only in my professional life, both as a firefighter and a paramedic, has this stuff become extremely, extremely helpful, um, especially as I progress in my career and to different avenues that, you know, where I, I've, I'm taking on more of a role for myself, where I'm being put into more stressful and more challenging situations on a regular basis, but also in my personal life as a yeah. new father and, you know, living in New York City where they reduce three lanes of traffic to one lane on a regular basis. And you're sitting in traffic trying to make it here to this conversation. And, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, exactly. You know, like in the end, it'll all be all right. But it's definitely a, a way of life. It's something that yeah. that we've not only I have adopted, but my entire household has adopted, luckily. <laughs> um, you know, so it's, yeah, I mean, it it can only make you better, you know, like it can only make us better. And even just having somebody in your arena or in your circle that's aware of this stuff, you know, even even just the awareness of that this this is something that happens to us, you know, mm -hmm. and, and where it used to be, you know, like, oh, what's wrong with that person? Now it's like, well, now we – we know, like, there, we have a lot of science. Yeah, and, you read between the lines. Yeah, we've done a lot of work. We've done a lot of reading. We continue, you know, and we're only at the tip of the iceberg, I, I feel like, with a lot of this stuff in, in various arenas, you know, EMS and fire, you know, and the other arenas we've looked into in high-stress industries. We're very much headed in the right direction, but we still have a lot to learn. So it's very much uh, an honor and, and exciting, one of the most exciting parts of my career to get to be a part of this and get to get to, to experience this with yourself and, and the rest of the team. Well, you presently head up all leadership under fire human performance programs that are tailored to pre-hospital EMS providers. Other contributing advisors include a critical care nurse, a professional sport, mental skills coach, and a clinical psychology student. I'm guessing that BLS and ALS providers don't typically conduct clinical and tactical training with these sorts of folks. So can you tell me why these resources are so valuable for pre-hospital EMS providers? Sure. And, and I think I, I got to this, um, you know, a little bit previously, but I think as pre-hospital care providers were put into situations more regularly that are life and death, you know, and that's the ultimate thing here is like, how can we be our best when everybody else is at their worst? So, We've been very fortunate to work with uh, some folks down in Katy, Texas, uh, Harris County, ESD48. They've kind of been the first EMS agency outside of the FDNY to explore this with us and, and bring us down and, and actually do some tactical skills training with, 
you know, implementing mental performance into their tactics and, and giving their members the tools to to navigate, you know, extremely uh, stressful situations. So in that regard, and the simplest answer, I think, is that, you know, like the, the life and death answer, like we're regularly put into situations where we have to be at our best when everybody else is at their worst. And, you know, we drill on, you know, the physical components of our, our job. We drill on the tactical components endlessly. And so having that ability to understand the, the mental components, the positive and the negative, can only enhance our ability to operate effectively in those types of environments. Jake, we have reached the point in our show where I would like to do a quick rapid fire Q&A with you. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Okay. I'm ready. All right. My first question is, what is your favorite book? All right. I, I put down two. Seven Summits by Rick Bass, Frank Wells, and Rick Ridgeway. I just like that book, like climbing the seven summits mm-hmm. on every uh, con. It seems like I, it's something I would love to do in my lifetime, though. My wife has banned me from Everest already. So, oh. yeah. <laughs> we well, went to base there. We went to base camp and I got to see it. And she's like, I hope you're happy now. And that's it. Let's base go. Yeah. So, but your mom yeah. went too. Yes. Yes. My mother did. We did it in honor of my brother, which was good. You know, like we t- try and do trips like that. We also, which I'll segue into my other book, my other favorite book. But we also biked the Camino de Santiago in Spain. I don't know if you're you familiar did? with it. You did? Yes. I, so, I'm familiar with the trail. Yeah. So, we biked it the best we could. It's not. Always set up for biking in a lot of spots. But, I was just going to yeah. say. I so mean, we, I was thinking of yeah. hiking it. I didn't know you. Could we had bike to stick it. to stick to some roads, but we were. There's on always a that clash between schedule. like trail runners and the, side, yeah. <laughs> and the mountain. Yeah, bikers. there is, and people are looking at you like, ah, <laughs> you know, like here they are walking for six, six weeks, eight weeks down the Camino, and yeah, you know, and here we are whizzing by them on bikes, and they're like. You know, I can only imagine what they're thinking. I, I know what they were thinking. <laughs> I can but tell you. Anyways, we were on a tight time schedule and it was worth it. We still got the whole experience and, you know. I didn't know anyways. that. I'm going to pick your brain after the show. All right. Yeah. But that, that comes uh, – I read The uh, Alchemist right before we yeah. went to that and that's always kind of been a, a favorite also. What's your favorite movie? So I forgot to say this before but another one of my main draws to New York, Ghostbusters. <laughs> Ever since I was a little boy. Did everybody hear my eye like, roll? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is – that or Ninja Turtles is where I got my initial, uh, you know, like, oh, New York looks like a cool place. You know, like I have yet to see any ghosts or – well, it's not true. Times Square has some Ninja Turtles on occasion. But for the most part, no actual grown turtles or a grown rat sensei. <laughs> okay. Who is your favorite leader from history? Sir Ernest Shackleton. Who is that? So he was uh, an Irish Antarctic explorer. He led three British expeditions to Antarctica. He originally was making attempts. He made two attempts to try and just get to the South Pole that were failed. And in his third attempt, they were going to do a cross transcontinental crossing uh, across Antarctica because somebody already beat them to the South Pole. So, but on the third trip, they left in 1914 from um, Plymouth, England, and they were headed towards uh, St. George Island. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, South Georgia Island. And they made it there. They regrouped and they headed into the Weddell Sea and their ship got stuck in ice mm-hmm. at that time of year. And they were stuck in the ice for 10 months, kind of floating around the Weddell Sea. And then after being down there for 10 months, surviving on the rations that they still had on the boat and an occasional seal or something that would pop up, the ice shelf they were on collided with another one and completely crushed their boat. 
Um, and they were able to, able to save the life rafts or lifeboats at that time, where they proceeded to float for another five months through Antarctica, through the Weddell Sea, and where they made it to Elephant Island. And then the morale was a little bit down, to say the least, of his men. So Shackleton grabbed two of his guys, and they got in a rescue boat, and he navigated 800 miles across the Weddell Sea in the warmer months and made it back to South Georgia Island, where he was able to get help. Then took uh, three to four months of trying to rescue his men and ended up rescuing all 27. All 27 of his crew survived. They had had some tough times, obviously. Yeah. you know, if you sure. can imagine, but you know, um, the journey in and of itself was 21 months since they had departed um, South Georgia Island initially, and uh, two years and 22 days since they had left England. So a lot of people had, had written them off, but I think it's uh, probably the best story of resiliency and yeah, that, that's out there. It's pr- pretty pretty wild. I'm and, interested. I'm going to do some homework now. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, when I went to Antarctica, I, I was doing research and I came across that, and I was like, wow. And I ended up reading the book, and it was uh, it was pretty pretty intense. What was the book? It's called The Endurance. Okay. There's a few out there. There's also a few um, documentaries and stuff, like shorter and longer, I think. Mm. But yeah, nonetheless, very very interesting. And unfortunately. Shackleton later lost his life down in, in that part of the world sailing. He had a heart attack on his boat. But a lot of his crew members from that time returned to England after that and went straight to the war and ended up losing their lives in the war. So if you can imagine being yeah. stuck in the ice shelf of Antarctica for a little over two years and then coming home and unfortunately losing your life in war. Um, nonetheless, a, a very, very interesting story of uh, resiliency. All right. I have two more questions. Okay. Which is your favorite mountain? All right. I had to think about this one a lot. So I'm going to say Fishtail Mountain, which is in the Annapurna part of Nepal. And several years ago, I uh, was heli skiing in the region there and got to be a little bit familiar with it. But it's it's pretty much the, the only sacred mountain left in Nepal where nobody's ever been to the top because the Hindu uh, religion believes that Lord Shiva lives at the top. So it's it's kind of uh, has this glow to it, and when you're down in the lower elevations and you can you look straight up the valley, and and there's Fishtail Peak right there, right at the top. It's pretty impressive. All, all the mountains in the Himalaya are very very impressive, but I I always feel like that one's was one that I I really enjoyed gazing at. And what's your favorite music genre? I'm gonna have to go with '90s rock. Oh, really? I'm, I'm okay. of the, I'm sure you are too, but of the of the TRL generation. <laughs> oh, you have. Yes. So you know. Um, so you I know. Forgot about yeah, that. <laughs> anything that was on old TRL back in the day, you know, and you'd race home from school just in time to watch Carson Daly. Well, yeah. You know? When I was growing up, we used to like play hooky and come oh, to yeah. Times Square. See, and try I always to wanted to do on. that kind of yeah. stuff. That's part of the reason I came here. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well. I have to say, you mentioned something earlier about like coming to this group and kind of getting that sense of home. And I remember when I got assigned to cover the FDMY's mental performance initiative the night before, right? I was very nervous, right? I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. But from what I had observed at that time, I kept telling myself, just be yourself, If you go and you just be yourself, you'll be fine. Don't try to be anything else. Just, like, stick to what you know and who you are. And I did. And look where we ended up. You found your fellow nerds. I did. I found my fellow (laughs) nerds. And I get to spend time speaking with you and getting to know you better. And I really appreciated that. So thank you for everything you shared today. Thank you, Patty.
Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.